0: Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two,
2: one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11.
0: Tower clear. Hi, this is Eleanor, one of the co-hosts of Space 3D. Today, my esteemed co-host Emily and I will conclude our fabulous interview with John Charles, NASA cardiovascular physiologist. In this episode, we'll get into medical issues of relevance to expedition-class space missions, such as going to Mars. We'll also discuss John's perspectives on the tension between medical research, engineering, operations, and even that dreaded NASA budget. We'll conclude with some comments on Skylab and the viability of frozen bodily fluids as far back as Project Gemini. So without further ado, let's get started. In terms of looking towards exploration class missions and obviously going to Mars eventually, I know that NASA has done a lot of modeling on you know, likely scenarios, rare scenarios, and that helps with mission planning for medical contingencies. But just curious, what are the most critical... Issues which could result in a mission termination.
2: Well, you're not going to terminate a mission to Mars. Okay. You know, once once you're once you're en route, you're en route. You know, after the first uh, day or two or three or small number of days, you don't have the delta v, you don't have the energy to turn around and come home. So if your ticket says Mars, when you close the hatch and you fire the engines, you're going to go to Mars. So the goal is not to terminate. The goal is to keep the crew members as healthy as possible before flight. Keep them as healthy as possible in flight. Provide the the minimum medical capability for their likely uh, likely problems in flight. And then uh, rely on their uh, resourcefulness and and the fact that bad things usually don't happen quickly in space. You know the the concerns about uh, you know burn injuries or fractures or or things like that. Are the kind of things that, that stimulate discussion with doctors, but then engineers will say, you know, we have to think about how that injury occurred. And if it's because of the pressure vessel failure, then you know you've probably got other things to worry about besides your, you know, your dislocated finger. Mm. You probably got to worry about you know the entire crew being asphyxiated or exposed to vacuum, and and your burn injury is probably secondary or tertiary. So the the kinds of things that the the doctors are worried about in, in planning for these long duration missions, and I just had this discussion with them you know, recently, is they're worried about medical issues. They're worried about things like sepsis and infections and stuff that are slow developing and do require uh, dedicated attention. But but uh, surgery and you know broken bones and things like that are way down on their list of concerns. They're, they've got more
0: concerns about medical issues and less about surgical and, and physical issues. Hmm, interesting. Are there any? Have there been any changes philosophically in in uh, carrying um, that one of the crew members has to be a, a surgeon or a physician by training?
2: That has not been resolved. It is understood pretty, you know, informally but pretty, pretty thoroughly that one of the crew members on a Mars mission will be a physician, and probably somebody else will be trained as a physician's assistant. But once you say that, it's
0: kind of loosey goosey because you can have Right now we have uh, astronauts who are physician, jet pilot, geologist,
2: concert pianist, or make books. And so you're probably going to find people that are like that to be astronauts. If you're, you know, we just selected 12 astronauts out of 18,000 applicants for the last, you know, the 2017 class. So out of uh, 18,000, you're going to find people that are pretty well-rounded and and capable of, of exhibiting the skills that you need. So we're probably going to have a fair number of jet pilot geologist physicians in the astronaut corps when it comes time to send people to Mars. And it's probably not going to be that hard to find a physician on every mission. The problem is going to be keeping those physicians current, medically current, because they're not going to be practicing up until the day of launch or even... The week before launch or the month before launch or the year before launch, they might not be practicing doctors for five years or more before launch and medical Techniques change, medical techniques require practice. So there's going to be a lot of just-in-time training and refresher training and stuff like that to be done on trips to you know trips to Mars. And that's just for the medical aspects. You know, there's also going to be the scientific aspects, engineering aspects, the operational aspects of the mission. So just as an aside, I will tell you that every time somebody says how are we going to keep the astronauts occupied on the, on the outbound leg to Mars? I'm thinking, haven't you been paying attention? There's not going to be time enough to do everything they need to do for their training and their certification and their housekeeping and simulations and all that kind of stuff. They're going to wish the trip outbound was longer because there's just so much to do before they get there. Mm. So, you know, the same thing the same applies, though, to so medical care. Uh, there's going to be just-in-time training
1: and keeping very sure that you don't design
0: features of the spacecraft that can injure astronauts. A lot of, a lot of planning that goes into all this. It's amazing and how it all comes together. There's also going to have to be a realization that you're embarking on an exploration mission and this is not the kind of uh, situation where you can go to the dock in the box down the street and, and get your boo-boo sutured up. This is, this is, this mission will involve risk. That's one of the things I say in my public lectures is that this, these missions are going to be riskier than Uh, missions that are not going
2: on in space flight, Uh, and eventually the odds are going to catch up with us. So if if we as a society are not comfortable with not everybody coming back from Mars that goes to Mars, then maybe we as a society ought to think of another way to spend our our resources instead of sending people to Mars.
0: Actually, related question. Has NASA evolved any of its uh, thinking regarding carrying a body bag?
2: Well, you know, I, I ask that question periodically, and I'm told nobody wants to talk about it too much. The doctors don't really talk about it too much. I believe there are body bags on board, uh, but you know, the, again, the question becomes, what do you, you know, what do you do with the body? Because the body bag itself. Isn't going to do very much for very long. You have to figure out a way to contain the, you know, the natural biological result of, of uh, decay of a of a body. Do you put it outside? Do you put it, at, you know, how, do you vacuum pack it? Do you, do you bury them in space? You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, have you read? Have, there's a book that's uh, out uh, by Gerald Brennan uh, named uh, Island of Cloud Island of Clouds. Yeah. It's about a, Have you heard about this? I don't know if you yeah. can hear me. I love that book. Um, that's one okay. of my favorite books. Do you remember the the whole episode in that book about the deceased astronaut and how they had to worry about what to do with the body? Yeah, and poor Kerwin.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to spoil the book too much, but I felt bad for
2: for uh, poor Kerwin in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyhow, the point is that was as good a discussion as I've seen about what what happens to you know what happens to a deceased person and what we ha- what the implication might have to be in, the, in space flight. So uh, I'm sure there are contingency plans. I'm that's not the area that I work in, and I can't really say anything more without speculating, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that the people have thought about these kind of details and, and, and detail.
0: In preparing for our discussion this evening, we did have a chance to go through your your oral histories that JSC has done. I know that you had co- made some comments regarding this uh, sort of the yin, yin-yang tension between engineering and life sciences um, regarding mission requirements, and we've heard a little bit about this with a, with another person we've interviewed recently curious if you could uh maybe cite an example or two where engineering decisions were to the medical disadvantage of the crew or have we really been just lucky that nothing uh substantial has has really befallen any of the astronauts so far
2: I think we have been lucky, and you know they say luck favors the prepared. so I think there's a great deal of preparation that has been gone has gone into all of our spaceflight experiences. even those that ended badly were still very well prepared for as much as they could foresee
0: or as much as they planned to foresee. Uh, I think there are, you know there are, uh, trade-offs that you have to make at what point does the, the astronaut become a system versus
2: a passenger you know if the astronaut is part of the, the resolution path for a problem does that make the astronaut you know more of a system and less of uh, you know less of the the payload uh, and that that sounds kind of obscure when i say that i'm not really i can't really give you any concrete examples uh, in current terms but you know if you think about you know, the, the kind of things that I, I think about are I come back to STS-1 and went, after the, the shuttle landed and John Young came bouncing down the stairs after the flight and started walking around, you know, looking at the orbiter and was still wearing his space suit without his uh, air conditioning unit. So he was he was at, at Edwards in April under the sun uh, in a, a large plastic suit walking around on the ground after having been in space for a couple of days. My first thought, and that was before I came to work at NASA. My first thought was, "Wow, okay, well, there goes any medical research you want to do post-flight because this is immediately confounded by everything this guy is doing." And if he's done it, everybody else is going to do it. So that's not the engineers per se, but that's operations. You know, it's it's more important for the astronaut to come out and walk around the orbiter and look at uh, look at things that he can't influence that it is to maintain uh, the adapted state for analysis by the scientists. And we can we can go back and forth about whether there's, that's a valid interpretation or whether there's anything useful to be acquired during post-flight medical data collection. But the, the point is that decision was made early in the space shuttle program and nobody dared challenge it because who could tell a guy not to go look around the spacecraft after he just flown back at Mach 25? Who's going to be the curmudgeon that tells you you can't do that so those are that's just an example one example of the kind of of, uh, tension i think between operations and research uh it's kind of a you might consider kind of a a petty example but it is an example other than that you know there there are uh, i remember thinking uh, back when i was in uh, supporting a space lab mission in huntsville you know there there were situations where the flight director wanted to to do certain things that impacted science and there are other priorities sometimes it was a call from the president that was more important than the data collection you know sometimes it was you know other engineering things you had to worry about The engineers always like to say you know if we can't get this oxygen problem fixed then your research is not really relevant anyhow so so you have to concede the time and let them go fix their their problems it's just that kind of thing i i may have said i may have had something in mind when i said that back in the at the interview for the oral history, but apparently I've gotten over it and forgiven and
0: forgotten. <laughs> All right. Well, the last related question um, has to do with uh, any thoughts that you have regarding any. Obviously, NASA is always fighting for every bit of money it can get. How budgetary ups and downs may have resulted in in losses to uh, medical and life sciences research capabilities you know on shuttle on station and maybe even beyond just curious about your thoughts on that
2: well that is yes that's a a, that is a constant uh, struggle Uh, we in the life sciences are a very small budget aspect of the
0: program head over to hulu this march where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long
2: Uh, currently, I am working with the Human Research Program. That is a program just like the Space Station Program and the Commercial Crew Program and the Orion Program. But those other programs are the big aircraft carriers, and we're the little rubber dinghy. Uh, our budget is their off error. It, it has to be that way because they're building rocket ships and space capsules, and we're you know we're running strip charts and laptops and and making numbers on pieces of paper with pencils. So you would expect our budget will be smaller than theirs. But we have recently in the human research program been faced with a substantial budget decrease. And if that with that budget decrease, and that budget decrease is because those big behemoths require more money than they've been allotted in the prior budget. So so they're they're carving us even thinner, even skinnier than we were before. Now we're confronting that by cutting back on research. And some of the research we're cutting back on May be related to aspects of spaceflight that deal with planetary surfaces, and since our current vision for for spaceflight beyond uh, ISS involves cis lunar habitats and might maybe even a Mars flyby, there's no pressing need to do planetary surface-related research. You know, things like sensory motor aspects of adaptation to a fractional g level, uh, things like uh, you know uh, the uh, Contamination from from dust on a, a lunar or Mars surface, you know things like that. So we have to we have to, to uh, economize wherever we can. And the things that have moved out are those those kinds of things. So we are do, not
0: doing some research that we otherwise might have preferred to do just because there's not an immediate need for it, or there's something else that's going to happen sooner than that. We're also doing research that is uh, that requires the space station because at some point the space station is going to go away. And when it goes away, we don't have any guarantee for another world-class research
2: venue in low-Earth orbit, so we have to try and wrap up as much of that as we can. So those are all issues of prioritization, and those prioritizations do then sometimes require budget or or budget reallocations because of budget cuts that make us do this or not do that as much as we might want to. It, It has always been that way. There have been Good years and bad years, uh, I know uh, most of the time that I've been here, it's it's been either not very good or a little bit better in terms of budget. We've never had all the money we could ever spend, as far as I can recall. But there have been, uh, if you think about it, it, this is actually useful in the sense of, of focusing your thinking on what's really important. Now, I guess the old joke is that there's nothing so much as your impending death to make you you know focus your thoughts on what's really important. The same is true of budget cuts if you' if you're faced with a budget cut, then you're you're forced to come back and say, well, those are things that
0: I really would I think need to be studied. but if I really had to pick one thing to study this is, this is it. it's a this thing here And that's sort of the situation we have been in that we currently find ourselves in. Well, and I'm sure that'll continue for the foreseeable future. but you know NASA's still been able to, I think, Make some incredible discoveries in spite of the that that reality of that of that constraint. So, right. Um, right. so my, my hats off to the folks folks down there and the other centers. Um, Emily, do you have any any additional questions?
1: I'm trying to think. Uh, as you know, uh, Dr. Charles, um, I'm a big uh, Skylab uh, fanatic. Um, I just wanted to ask you, and obviously, this is a big question, so you don't have to. Uh, go too much into detail uh, from what i'm aware of uh, I, I have a friend of mine who's also a skylab historian uh, dwight Stephen uh bonecki who uh talked to i think uh dirk Fermout. uh one of, i think i'm saying his name properly uh, one of the belgian astronauts who uh right, who on right. the shuttle and uh, he was saying i, I believe it was Fermout who said you know there was so much data from skylab you know medical data that um you know, they, they really couldn't, you know, process all of this. Uh, how true is that statement? And is there still, you know, any, uh, I don't know how to put this in a, in, a, in a nice way, is there still any, you know, perhaps, you know, blood samples or, you know, effluent that maybe left um, from that period, you know, that you guys could still, you know, maybe, you know, look at or something like that? I mean, from even as far back as 44, 43 years ago? Yes and yes. Uh, Skylab was,
0: the f- I call it the first golden age of space life sciences research, the
2: Skylab. The book, you know, the biomedical results from Skylab, was our Bible for, you know, much of my career. Even as we were doing the space shuttle missions, we were referring back to the Skylab results to understand what we're seeing and what we should be doing next. Samples do exist uh, from that far back, and uh, there is uh, a bit of a tension between analyzing them and preserving them uh, for future analysis. The Folks that analyze samples are always sure that the next generation of analysis techniques is going to be better than what they have now, and so they're really reluctant to use up the last of their samples, whatever they are, uh, to... Uh uh, with current techniques They're pretty sure That the next thing Is going to be the, the best thing ever And that's really uh, There's really a lot Of reluctance to, to to using up All the samples So we have We do have freezers Full of samples As far back as Apollo And maybe even Gemini And you know, there may be they may be Fecal samples they may be blood samples I'm not sure If there's any urine samples But the problem is After that many years In deep freeze The samples are Compromised Just because uh, they, They're not uh, They're not melt- but they are sublimating you know the, the constituents just uh, just do a change and not for the better That long in deep freeze and if only they were only in deep freeze for that long time but there have been power failures there have been thaw and freeze cycles and there have been hurricanes and floods and things like that so there there are samples periodically uh and uh, by that, I mean, you know, every decade or so, the uh, the keepers of the samples go through and look at all of them and decide which ones to keep and which ones to toss out. And sometimes the toss out is just because the, the adhesive label with the description of what it is has fallen off. And so you don't know what this bag of frozen stuff is anymore. And then what do you do with it? Well, do you keep it and analyze it anyhow? And if you analyze it, what does it mean? Because you don't know if it came from, you know, what flight under
0: what circumstances, or do you throw it away? And thereby throw away some... Irreplaceable biological specimen. So there, uh, Firmout is
2: correct that there is a great number of samples collected, a lot of those samples have not been, and they've been maintained. You know, the right, uh, the the analysis has occurred that has been requested and required and justified. And you try not to use the entire sample anytime you make an analysis. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with anything that acts like we don't. You know, we've we've got stuff we've never bothered to look at because of everything we've collected we've we've had you know purposes for collecting and that it addressed the uh, the questions that were being asked and that were justified for the the collection of the sample. Yeah, but we're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep collecting samples. In fact, right now on the space station. We are collecting samples in a program that's called repository, specifically not to be touched until after the space station program is over, so that the next generation of analysis techniques can can go back and look at it. Some of us, I guess I'm not being very subtle about that, think that this is a silly thing to do. That we're we ought to be analyzing the samples we collect right now and not saving them for some. Rainy day in the future, uh, and we have big philosophical discussions about that. But we're still doing that right now, and uh, we would like to maximize the usefulness we get out of the samples because those samples are acquired, you know, through the discomfort of astronauts. And you'd like to make sure that what you do to an astronaut is justified when you make the when you get the results back from the investigation. So it is it is a, a fairly constant thing to to be collecting samples, but also relationship to Tom's discussion or question earlier on about dual-use technology, we are moving very vigorously towards in-flight analysis. The idea being that Mm. you don't bring anything back from Mars because who wants to maintain, you know, frozen blood and urine and fecal samples for a round-trip to Mars, with all the problems that's going to face, including the possibility of power failures and you know and things like that, wouldn't it be better just to analyze the samples in flight, you know, in real time, and like we say, convert that, uh, those samples into ones and zeros, and send those back to Earth, so they can be analyzed, you know, as long as you want as much detail as you want. Uh, so we may we might be uh, on the verge of. of uh, Entering a phase where we analyze the samples in flight and then dispose of them or use them up during the in-flight analysis, and don't have to worry about freezers full of samples anymore.
1: Okay, well that sounds uh, that sounds awesome. I really appreciate it. because I was curious about that myself. I was like, how much did they hold on from that era? Because um, I I could be wrong, and if I am, please correct me. I've talked to people about you know many different
0: manned uh, space programs, and I was. You know, I was curious about you know what the Soviets were
1: doing around the same time, you know, with the early Salyut, uh space stations. And I was talking to somebody, and they're like, they didn't save anything. And I was like, they didn't oh, save what? anything because they didn't collect
2: anything. The okay. Russians have not really been uh, big sample collectors. They they would do finger sticks and analyze them in orbit. You know, they would uh, essentially not taking a lot of Venus samples and sort of oh, god forbid, not fecal samples. Uh, they would. <laughs> Know, they would use a, a European-built reflotron to get basic uh, blood constituents from a finger stick, and that was their, their data collection. The Russians, like I said before, have a different philosophy towards uh, a lot of the, the biomedical research uh, and data that, that uh, they have a
1: different, uh, different uh, approach than we do. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating to know because, uh, yeah, I was talking to somebody and I was like, man, what a lost opportunity in a way because. They kind of started their space station program really in earnest around the time you know we did. So I'm kind of like, man, they, you know, I, I was like, why didn't they save all the, all the data like we did? You know, because we have so much, like a wealth of information. Yeah, 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 I really appreciate. Di- no, different philosophies. Thank yeah. Exactly. Thank you so much. That's I've sure. always wanted to ask you that. <laughs>
0: sure, glad to. Yeah, well, yeah, well, thank you so much for your time this evening, and you know, we'll definitely—I'm uh, sure—we'll be chatting again. I know that you have a lot of interest in the manned orbiting laboratory, and maybe we can entice you back to uh, to talk about uh, MOL at some point.
2: Anytime. time. You've already
1: you've already got me at, at uh, any invitation you want. Just say when.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, fantastic. Sorry.
1: Thank you so much. i always wanted to talk to you because I love your Facebook posts. Um,
2: well, thank you very much. And likewise, Emily, to, to you. It's uh, nice to chat with you. and don't, uh, don't be a stranger. If I can answer any more questions, even offline, let me know. All
0: right, fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. On behalf of Space 3D, I hope you enjoyed our three-part interview with John Charles, NASA cardiovascular physiologist. Stay tuned for additional interviews on medical capabilities in space during upcoming podcasts. On behalf of my co-hosts, Emily and Tom at Space 3D, this is Eleanor signing off until our next episode.